Okay, well, thank you all for being here. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you. For those of you who don't know, I'm Bill Cecil, Jr., and uh, I really appreciate all of you being here. As I was planning uh, this and kind of doing my homework for this, uh, I was um, first going through kind of a list of what Dad had accomplished in his work. And then, um, I don't mean to sound surprised, but I was very surprised in a pleasant way that I read all about it in two wonderful articles in the newspaper over the last few days. Uh, they really did a great job, and I appreciate it. Uh, on behalf of the family, i just like to say that. Um, they, they covered it really well, and, and they did that for me, so I had to start over with some new notes. Um, I remember he told me when he first took over uh, his role here back in either 1959 or 1960, depending on which story you read, um, that he thought it would take him his entire career uh, to get the travel and tourism business to break even. Uh, it only took him eight years. Uh, now, how did he do that? Aside from determination and some pretty healthy stubbornness, um, he did it through detailed budgeting and planning. Uh, we, uh, we used to start out with these yellow pads um, and these yellow notepads, legal pads of legal length, and they would have handwritten notes on them. And then there'd be a column on the right that would add up into subgroups and subgroups down there might be four or five pages. And that was our budget for the year. And we did that. And then we went on to these huge budget books that were, you know, an inch, two inches, three inches. And they were three ring binders. And then we ended up with four or five of them, you know. And thank goodness for computers because now we have huge computer files full of our budgets that we run. And we've grown the business consistently over those years, uh, and it's, it's been just amazing. I talk about the planning because that's kind of one of the secrets to our success, and, and he laid the groundwork for that many years ago. But one of the things he also did was we opened a winery back in 1980, between 1983 and 1985, and his planning was so astute that he decided we were going to have three bottles sold to every guest. And the day after we opened the winery to the public, we realized it was uh, one bottle for every three guests. <laughs> and, uh, and so by doing that, we, uh, we realized that we couldn't make our payments to the bank because it was mainly debt financed. And that was the birth of our retail business because all of a sudden we had to have something else to make the numbers work. Um, there's a few sayings around the company that are attributed to Dad. And uh, some of them are attributed to him, and I think they're accurate. Others we say about him, and I know they're accurate. Uh, and so the first one uh, that is attributed to him is be reasonable and do it my way. Um, actually, Mom takes credit for that and says that Dad took that from her because he liked it so much. So anyway, uh, the other one that we attribute to him or we say about him is just when you thought you got the ends to meet someone, moves the ends. So anyway, he was good at that, always making you stretch and reach for a little bit more. Uh, the one I kind of like the most, um, and it sums it up pretty well working all these years uh, in a family business, is if you wanted a second opinion, ask me again. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I wanted to tell just a couple more stories before I, I sit down. but. Um, He'd been sick quite a bit, as most of you know, and uh, last Labor Day, which I was actually thinking was September 5th, but I looked it up, it was September 4th, uh, we, um, I went by to see him on Labor Day, and uh, he'd just gotten out of the hospital a few weeks before, maybe not even, and um, anyway, I, I went by and um, 
I didn't know what, quite what to expect, and I said, well, hi, Dad, I just want to say hi on Labor Day. Uh, we always used to have lunch over there on Labor Day, and it was kind of a family tradition. And, uh, and he said, well, what are you doing over here? I said, well, it's Labor Day. And he, he looked at me, and he said, uh, well, yeah, it is. And he said, thank you so much for coming over here on Labor Day to wish me a happy Labor Day. He said, but you know as well as I do, we work on holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was... I was in blue jeans and a Carhartt shirt, and he said, and by the way, when we're at work, we wear a tie. And, and I, uh, I got a real kick out of it. It used to be uh, that uh, that kind of thing would hurt my feelings years ago, but it didn't hurt my feelings at all. It was great, because uh, it literally had been maybe three or four years since he'd felt well enough uh, to give me a hard time about something. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it was actually great to, to see him back more like himself. And he was sitting up and alert, and, uh, and he was uh, having fun, uh, giving me a little bit of a hard time. So anyway, uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to mention, you know, this last week or so has been kind of stressful. We've, um, Deanie and I have worked hard uh, to get, this, uh, get all the arrangements finalized and made. And she and I were reviewing something um, it was kind of serious, all the stuff that's in the paper and the obituaries and all that stuff. We had these key points that we had to make decisions on. And, um, and she's taken this all very seriously, and, and it's rightfully so. And one of the points was, um, in lieu of flowers, um, you know, please donate blank. And so we started talking about that. And, um, and Dad always liked this church. Uh, it goes in our family all the way back to Mr. Vanderbilt. He particularly liked the stained glass uh, in here, he always would tell me that it's actually got shading on it, and shading on stained glass is very complicated and difficult. He always said it was some of the best stained glass that he thought he'd ever seen, and so uh, that's why we selected that. But during the course of this conversation, I started laughing, and Deanie's like, you know, well, look, be serious, get your head in the game here, you know, it's not funny. Uh, and I said, well, no, but you know what Dad would really like? And that's for everybody to go buy a ticket to Biltmore State. <laughs> 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 so, as I, so, but of course that's that's not what we asked for. But because uh, she was absolutely right, I just kind of I went off to one of those places I tend to go to sometimes. But anyway, thank you all again for being here. We appreciate your time and your concern for our family. Um, and Charlie, I think you're up next. Thank you. You'll get old one day, too. <laughs> Good morning, friends and family of Bill. Uh, before I get into my little remembrances, uh, another favorite saying I always, for 30 years, for lunch on Tuesday, I'd say, how are you, Bill? And he'd say, much better after seeing you. I thought that was pretty nice. What a privilege for an old redneck boy like me from Louisiana to say some kind words about a friend, a son of an English lord, and I almost forgot a Vanderbilt. Most of you remember where you were when certain events took place. I can remember the first time I met Bill. He was in my backyard 
my neighbor brought him over for lunch that I furnished, and the women were at some meeting, as they usually do. And uh, just as we sat down to eat uh, our steak, I looked over at Busby Mountain, and I said, who owns that mountain? And Bill said, I do. I said, would you mind if I uh, walked up there sometime? And he says, yes, I would. <laughs> so I said, well, you so-and-so give me back that steak. And, and I got to thinking nobody ever called him that to his face. Uh, from then on, we slowly became very close friends. That brings up one of the many accomplishments of him. As most of you know, he was determined to do, to turn a profit for the Biltmore House and grounds. He single-handedly got a large part of the Western North Carolina farmers to grow tomatoes under the house name. That gave many farmers in this area a cash crop. That was going so well that Bill decided that uh, branch out into selling some Easter lilies. Well, I found out that he didn't quite plan right. They weren't going to bloom on Easter. So I teased him about that. And the next morning after Easter, there were 100 plus lilies on my front porch. <laughs> he, he never said a word, but I got the message. The next endeavor that I remember about Bill was his photography. He was, you know, a perfectionist in anything he did. And he uh, would go to the local park on 4th of July, take pictures of everybody, dogs, cats. And I still have a photograph he took of my son, Jim, holding a baseball bat. After he mastered this, naturally, he lost interest. Along about that time, someone during the court administration, they put a 50 mile, mile an hour limit on the highways. Bill called me one day to come over to his house, Frith, and he had something to show me. When I got over there, it was a big red Ferrari. And uh, the next day, I believe, he got a ticket with it, and I never saw that Ferrari again. <laughs> Somewhere along this time, he also decided he wanted to be a chef. And he redid his entire kitchen. And I'm telling you, he turned out to be a good chef. He knew that I liked to hunt and fish. And we talked about it. And one day I invited him to go to Lake Tahoma, a local lake. And I was prepared for all kind of tangles and everything. So help me God, he could fish. He could throw a casting rod. And that's hard to do. He caught his fish, the first one. He caught the most. He caught the biggest. He cleaned his fish, and he cooked them. That's Bill Sesson. I don't know the exact dates, but sometime after this, Bill decided to create a restoration business here and in London to teach people a trade. Guess who thought a lot of this? One day, Bill called me and wanted my wife and, and me to join him at lunch at the Frith because Prince Charles was the guest of honor. How many of you rednecks out there have had dinner with, with Prince Charles? <laughs> Prince Charles had heard of Bill's work and came here, I remember, on Prince Brunei's plane. Why, I don't know, I remember that. At this time, I'd like to remind you of the music room opening at the Biltmore House. It was a wonderful party. 
Bill became anxious because the penance he had hired was late. And he asked me to go help to find him. And as I walked past the man at the door, I had on a big fancy tuxedo. I didn't recognize him. It was the carpenter who had redone the music room, W.O. Plemons. Bill took matters into his own hand and sat at the piano and played a beautiful melody. I don't remember which one, but the pianist he had hired heard someone playing the piano and he promptly appeared. His name was Van Cliburn. <laughs> How many of you knew Bill was an accomplished pianist? He's a fisherman, a pianist, a photographer, a chef. Bill had a few secrets from everybody else that I was privileged to know. How many of you knew that his secret place to eat was Bojangles? <laughs> Bill and I never had an argument. We always discussed things. I never heard him use a curse word or speak ill of anyone. Looking back at all the many stories about Bill and all of these accomplishments, I'd like to remind you the definition of a Renaissance man. That's a man who has many talents, many ideals, and knows how to use him. Is there any doubt in your mind that you could not call this man a Renaissance man? Uh, Bill, rest in peace. And as I say in my best schoolboy Latin, meus en passim. Rest in peace, Bill. I'd like to thank you all for being here to honor our father this morning. Um, there have been so many articles, as Bill mentioned earlier, so many wonderful tributes to his life's work. And we are just so proud to um, be a member of that family. Um, I wanted to share an, another side of this incredible man. Um, in addition to being an astute businessman and visionary, dad was also a wonderfully generous and caring husband, father, grandfather, and now great-grandfather. He took great pride and joy in his family, and much of what motivated him in business was his desire to provide a secure, meaningful life for all of us. He instilled in all of us a sense of greater good, of integrity and responsibility, of quality and doing things the right way, and an abiding commitment to Biltmore and all those who worked here. Dad was a private man, and he guarded our family's privacy carefully through the years. But some of the things that I wanted you to know, Charlie has already mentioned, <laughs> and Bill. <laughs> but I'm going to forge ahead at any rate. Um, he was a genuinely generous and caring man. He respected his family heritage, and he took his responsibilities seriously. He loved his family and particularly our mom, whom he called Sunshine. He channeled his creative energies, as Charlie already mentioned, in, um, as a gourmet chef at one point, and, um, and he enjoyed entertaining his friends and family after he retired um, in 1890, in 19, whoops, sorry, I lost 100 years. <laughs> you know those dates, I get them confused. 1995, but actually, in his heart, he never really retired. Biltmore was always very much a part of who he was. And he was very proud 
of the growth that the company had experienced in recent years, and he was so proud of his leadership team for having accomplished that growth. He had a practical approach to preservation, which I was reminded of. Howard Covington, who collaborated with him um, on creating the Lady in the of, sorry, Lady in the Hill, on the Hill, um, he shared he shared with me some advice that Dad had once given the, natu- the National Trust some 30 years ago as they struggled to figure out what Montpelier's future would be. Dad told them, he said, "Well, just get someone who knows how to use a hammer." So. He was um, very practical in that respect. He looked forward to his weekly lunches with Charlie Cummings very much, and in earlier days also with George and Dale Swift and so many other of his friends and family that he loved to entertain on a regular basis with good food, amusing stories, and of course a selection of Biltmore wines. This time of year, in November, Dad always invited our family to join, in the, uh, join him in the Frith kitchen to uh, prepare the Christmas pudding. Each grandchild ha- uh, took turns um, adding the ingredients and mixing the, the bowl. And then finally, when the mixture was prepared, we used to add some coins um, into the mix so that it would bring you good luck and um, a certain surprise on Christmas morning. Um, but one year we got carried away with all the coins that we put in and the pudding completely fell apart. And so dad nixed the coins for future years. No more coins in the pudding. So there really is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Um, he was pleased, so pleased that three of his grandchildren had joined the family business and he took great joy in seeing that the legacy and traditions were continuing in, within the family. He was happy that they had found wonderful spouses um, who added so much to our family. And he also enjoyed hearing about the adventures and pursuits of the remaining two grandchildren who um, had not yet joined the family business but were um, traveling on a different path, but exciting times for them as well. Um, He also enjoyed being a great-grandfather for the past seven months. That was very special to him, and I'm so happy that you all brought the babies by regularly to play with them, with Mom and Dad. He was a planner, and even as far back as March 1983, he had begun planning his own funeral. In a letter to his attorney, he wrote, I'm enclosing a letter from my friend John Barrett, which gives the hymns used at his father's funeral. They seem particularly appropriate, and therefore, would you be kind enough to make a note in the appropriate place that should the need occur, and in parentheses he had written, of course, I don't intend to allow it to occur, end of parentheses, but at my funeral, these hymns would be quite suitable for the music, um, and the music is enclosed, and I believe he would be very honored today to know that those hymns and um, the music was was performed in his honor. And always he was more concerned with mom's health and well-being than his own. He's been so very loving and patient with mom these past years and as she struggled with her own health issues. um, They celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary in October and I've been blessed to see a beautiful love story unfold. It was his wish to remain at home for the rest of his days, and thanks to the caring and compassionate team of caregivers and um, compassionate and, and under the supervision of Dr. Rice, 
and the Frith household staff, we've been able to honor that request. Our family is so very grateful for all that was done to ensure his comfort during those final, those final days and it was those difficult times. So many of them are here today and um, are sitting among the family as Dad would have wanted. And I just thank you again from the bottom of our heart. Um, I will be forever grateful for the love and support that I received from these, my, my incredible parents, our incredible parents, and Dad. And it is indeed a privilege to be a member of this family. I remain so very thankful for all these many blessings. And for me, I will cherish the memories. And particularly, as Charlie already noted, um, I will cherish that particular greeting that we always enjoyed, that when we would ask Dad how he was doing, he would always say, better for seeing you. So that was um, very special. So I found a poem, and I thought I'd end with that. Um, I don't have the author, I just so we'll just make something up. <laughs> um, don't grieve for me, for now I'm free. I'm following the path God has laid, you see. I took his hand when I heard him call. I turned my back and left it all. I could not stay another day to laugh, to love, to work, to play. Tasks left undone must stay that way. I found that peace at the close of day. If my parting has left a void, then fill it with remembered joy, a friendship shared, a laugh, a kiss. Oh yes, these things I too will miss. Be not burdened with times of sorrow. I wish you the sunshine of tomorrow. My life's been full. I savored much. Good friends, good times, a loved one's touch. Lift up your hearts and peace to thee. God wanted me now. He set me free. Bill Cecil died on All Hallows' Eve, an interesting time of year to die. It's that festival in the Christian tradition, but we're not the only one who has it, that we call one of those thin days, those thin days where we really recognize and pause to say, you know, actually the space between this world and the next is very thin. The reality of this world and the next, of passing from one life to the next, is really a thin place. The remembrance of ancestors, you can go anywhere on the planet, in any culture, in any religion. That's, that's why Episcopal priests get to marry, so they're used to babies, you know, stirring things up. So, bless you, child. <laughs> but you can go to any place in the world, any culture that has ever existed, and all of us share ancestral remembrance days because it's primal, it's in our bodies, it's in our DNA, and we know somewhere deep down, perhaps probably biologically, that that space is thin, that our ancestors are with us, and that world that we sometimes call the heavens and the earths, which sometimes we might think are really wide apart, really aren't, because we can feel it, and we can experience it. And we tell the stories, and something in our very genes just starts to light up. When Jesus prays that 
May it be in heaven and as it is on earth. May it be on earth, sorry. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a fantasy. It's not some, gosh, wouldn't it be nice. He's saying, it is. This world is right here. I'm going to prepare a place. And they say, well, where is that? And he says, well, I am it, actually. I mean, that's just great rabbi language. Well, actually, I already am the way. May you remain in eternal life, as Jesus says. This thinness that we feel in our bodies and souls, that our DNA knows that even death can't separate. All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, Day of the Dead, the thin space, the seamless connection of generations, the inheritance and heritage of generational connection. That sound familiar? That sound like a Cecil kind of thing? That sound like Edith and George and Bill? We certainly hear that through the echoes of Bill's life. Someone who knew that this moment today, this space, all space, isn't simply ours. It's something we've inherited from those who went before us, who made it possible. And it's something we are going to pass on to the people who are sitting in these pews 40 years from now. The way we choose to live will determine what they experience. We are part of this thread that is life, and we're a part of the thread of those who have gone before and those who will come after, interwoven through every human being and all of time. That's really at the heart of what George and Edith sought to live in this area. It's at the heart of what Bill was about. We didn't simply join this land and this community to consume it, but to be part of it. We didn't come here simply to bring our threads, but to say, how do our threads exist and interweave with the threads that already exist here? We know that the interwoven threads of the community, of the land, of the people, are where our life is found. It's what they understood. It's what they passed on to us. It's what we take from this place. And they also understood that we are called always to ask, how is it that we're using our threads? When he recently spoke at UNCA, David Brooks suggested that we're living in a time between eras. He named three eras. If you were there, you can correct me if I say it wrong. He said, after World War II, we were in an era of community where we had a collective of thinking, we've got to rebuild. We've got to rebuild as a nation. We've got to rebuild these other lands that have been destroyed in, in this terror and chaos. And there was a cohesion and institutions were things we gave our trust to and, and believed on and leaned on. And there was a sense of community, some kind of greater call. But as the later 60s arrived, we entered into what he called the era of fragmentation and isolation, where we began to think we had the luxury of separating from each other and pulling apart. And we didn't trust our institutions because many of our institutions gave us some good reasons, including the church, to wonder. I mean, we are human beings that occasionally don't make decisions out of love, but out of fear. And we've been living in this time of fragmentation and isolation, as he says, where we're moving farther apart from each other, but that that is starting to fall apart in on itself. Because we really realize that what we need now is community. 
that what we really need now is love and relationship. And that that's the era that we're moving into. I appreciate his time and thinking, and I'm sitting here going, well, we've been saying that with festivals like All Saints and Day of the Dead, and some folks have been realizing that all along. That when we think we have the, the, the luxury of separating from ourselves, we really are choosing death. That what saves us is community. That what saves us is relationship. That what saves us is taking the life we've been giving and generating it for those who come after us. All Saints betrays any illusion that we are fragmented. We are inherently connected to all of life. And when we choose to live from that place, we find life. That's what Paul is saying today. He's saying, you know, I could, I could gain all things, I could do all things, but if love, if community, if relationship isn't at the heart of it, it's really hollow and empty. It's love that brings life and relationship and community. And so today, a communion of saints, a communion of souls, is leaving us some questions for us to chew on. That communion that includes Paul and Jesus and George and Edith and Bill. How do our choices name our understanding of connection? How do our choices name that we're part of that interwoven fabric that is larger than us? That's what they've left us. That's what they expect us to continue to live. And so I'm thinking, if you've got to die on a certain day, man, all Hallows' Eve, what a great one. When you're thinking about making that movement from this life to the next, a day that says, it's not as far as you think, take heart. Remember the connection that you felt in your bones from your ancestors. Remember that this is a very, very thin space between these worlds, as close as our own bodies and souls. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. It is. <laughs>